0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Thousands of students across the U.S. are heading back to college, many hoping that they will find themselves as they go off away from their parents but they're not the only ones facing some kind of identity search or crisis. Many universities in the South uh, are finding that they are trying to figure out who they are, uh, that their past is creating some problems. Two schools in particular, University of the South in Tennessee, as well as North Carolina at Chapel Hill, are finding that because of their Confederate roots and some symbols on campus of their heritage, that they are walking a fine line. They want to somehow appeal and change who they are to draw in diverse students, at the same time not offend donors and alumni. So the question of who you are and what you stand for is very important. It is a matter of great significance. What is our identity? So it shouldn't surprise us that in Peter's letter very early on as he's writing to Christians scattered because of their faith, he talks to them about their identity. But maybe not in the way that we might think. Not so much talking about, well, who are you personally in Christ? But who are you corporately in Christ? Uh, and so I want to direct your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 10. Because it's here that Peter gives us a refresher course in our corporate identity in Christ. Notice how verse 4 begins. It simply says, as you come to him. The first of many terms in this that are plural, indicating, like I said, Peter is not being very subjective here and saying, well, what do you think it means to be in Christ? Uh, What do you think just your personal identity is? I think we're minded in a world that we live in today, a postmodern world. Everything is very subjective. Everything is very personal. It's your personal journey. It's your personal story. Well, Peter moves us out of that and says, let's talk about your objective corporate identity as as you come before God. What does that mean? And so as we look to explain this further, I want you to think of who this is writing here, Peter. Think back to a time in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And there's lots of different comments replied by the disciples. And then he says, but, but who do you say that I am? You may remember that's when Peter speaks up, gives his confession that you are the Christ. And then you have the statement about the church that will follow. And I think what you have here is Peter answering that same question for us once again, but with a much deeper understanding, with a much deeper humility, as he says, let me tell you who you are in Christ, who you are corporately, your corporate identity, what you stand for, and what you should represent. And so as you come to that, we're going to look at verse 4 specifically, uh, in that to order to answer who we are in Christ, our corporate identity is tied to the identity of Christ. In other words, if, if we don't have who Christ is correct, then our identity is not going to line up. And so you see in verse 4 that the terminology used there comes right out of the Old Testament. Speaking of Christ, it says, as you come to him, he is the living stone. Now, if you paid attention and look at this passage closely, you'll notice there's at least three direct references from the Old Testament. You have Isaiah, you have Psalms referred to in another place, Isaiah again. But there's also other little phrases throughout this that are linked and allusions to other references in the Old Testament. So in other words, within the span of six verses, you have six different Old Testament quotes, references, allusions that Peter references for his audience. And this fact to speak of Christ as the living stone Comes right out of the book of Isaiah. References in the book of Daniel. Psalms. In other words, that Christ is all powerful. He is a means of strength, security. He is the means of life and power. He is the living stone. But then he goes on and speaks about not only is he the living stone, but notice that he is chosen by God and precious to him. And once again, think if you were listening to this and you were kicked out of Jerusalem because of your faith in Christ, you were facing persecution, and here Peter puts before you Jesus Christ, the living stone, the one chosen and precious to God. He was not well received by the world. And you can start to see there's a linking here between who Jesus Christ is, and who those are in Christ. So he's the living stone. He's he's chosen by God, precious in God's sight. He's valued. He's honored. But then go down to verse 6, and in the quotation from the book of Isaiah here, get to the end of verse 6, or middle of verse 6, and it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone cornerstone. And then you see as well in verse 7 the passage from Psalm 118 says the builders rejected the one the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. Each of these are interesting labels. We think of a cornerstone that tends to bring a building together, interlocks the two walls. Uh, a capstone is something that would be the very last stone placed in if you think of a Roman archway. At the top would be the capstone. Two very critical foundational pieces. So as Peter is going to tell us, well, what is our corporate identity? Who are we as the body of Christ? He says, well, we first have to answer, who is Christ? And he does that very well before us. That same imagery is going to carry over, if you'd look with me for a moment, at the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and there we listen to the Apostle Paul as he's describing the church. Ephesians 2, and follow along as I read verse 19 through 22. Consequently, same as saying, therefore, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul follows the same line of thinking that Peter does in 1 Peter 2, because he first will tell us who is Christ, he's the chief cornerstone, and then from that he tells us, now this is who you are. Because by conversion you are united to Christ. And so let's return to 1 Peter chapter 2, and then once again look here, how does the identity of Christ affect our corporate identity? And the answer would be if we are one with Christ, then our identity should reflect the very character of Christ. And so you notice in verse 4, it references Jesus as being chosen and elect. All you need to do is go back to chapter 1 and look at how Peter began his letter. To God's chosen or elect. So our identity is established on who Jesus Christ is, and we can say that we are chosen and elect in God's eyes by God's grace. But then go back to Second Peter 2, and you'll see in verse 5 some very descriptive Old Testament imagery and word pictures. In verse 5, Christ is the living stone, but then notice he says, you also like living stones. So we have this reference here to something being developed and built. He goes on and says, not only are we living stones, but we are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We want to go back and, and sort of think for a moment what's the significance of these Old Testament images that are brought to the surface here so notice that first one, we're being built into a spiritual house. We are being built into a, a temple, a, a dwelling place for God. And I think even today, most people at least associate with a temple, a house of worship, uh, something sacred about it. So as the people of God, we, we are sacred. We, we are set apart. We have been declared holy and we are continuing to grow and have that holiness manifest itself. Uh, But we are his temple. We are his dwelling place. This would lend credit to why Paul speaks of your body as the temple of God. Oddly enough, today we have people who worship the body but don't see it as a temple of God. See it as something to be misused. But Paul says, and Peter agrees, that we are being built up into a spiritual house. Notice we are a holy priesthood. You might think, well, wait, I thought the priesthood was completed and done away with in Christ. He did the ultimate sacrifice. Absolutely. But in what sense then is Peter saying, but but you're a holy priesthood? I think in that thought that we are to live lives consecrated and committed to serving God. That doesn't mean we're doing that in a temple or in a church per se, but but we live our lives in service to God. This is something the reformers picked up on when they spoke about every believer is a priest, the priesthood of all believers. We we have access into God's presence. Uh, The word of God is not confined in its meaning and understanding to just certain people in the church. If we know Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit opens the word of God to us. We can read it. We can understand it. And we need the help of those who are gifted as teachers. But there's no reason why. We can't read scripture. We don't don't need someone to always tell us this is what it means. That's a privilege we have. But Peter also adds to that in verse 5 that we are able to perform or offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Right away, you have the image of an Old Testament priest performing and offering sacrifices. Well, as Christians, our worship is a sacrifice. As you were reminded of in our call to worship, come before him with sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. So we are to, in our attitude, in our surrendering of things to seek God's will, not our will, those are sacrifices that we're offering. Not to procure our right standing before God. We we are in right standing because of Christ. but These are evidences of that right standing. So a rich Old Testament language to many of those who may have been Jewish believers hearing this, this is what is ours in Christ. This is who we are now because of Christ. So our corporate identity is tied to the identity of who Christ is. But then you go to verses 9 and 10, and it's, it's almost impossible here to read this without thinking of Israel. Because the words used here are throughout the Old Testament associated with the unique position of God's people in the Old Testament. So now you have this reminder in Christ, we are the people of God. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. You either know Christ as Lord and Savior or you don't. So again, consider these terms. You are a chosen people. Uh, You you are not just a nation, so much in like we think of, well, Israel is a nation, but but you are a family. You, You are a people group set aside by God. And this has nothing to do, as we said, it's not racist or anything like that. It's based on our spiritual nature that has been changed through Jesus Christ. So we are a chosen people. And I think as Peter would say that, as I said, he was saying that with the deepest sense of humility, but tremendous rejoicing. I don't want you to forget this. Again, think of his audience. No place to call home. And yet he's telling them, you are a chosen nation. You are a family of God. But he continues to go on and says, you are a royal priesthood. And notice this is for all who know Jesus Christ. Read through the Old Testament. Not everybody's a priest. Not every Levite was a priest. Certain Levites were, but not every Levite was a priest. And yet here, Peter is saying, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a royal priesthood. We should be able to say that with the greatest sense of confidence and joy. And I'm sure as you go through your week, as I go through my week, there are probably times you don't feel like much of a royal priest. But that doesn't change the reality of who you are in Christ, because who Christ is, is unchanging. So you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. Then he says simply, you are a holy nation. Uh, And this is a little bit different than saying you are a a chosen people, but that visually you, you associate with certain things. So Israel was associated in different ways that showed they were the people of God. And I would hope through our conversations, through our mannerisms, our actions, those who know us would pick up on the fact that, that we are believers. Uh, we're more than just nice people. I meet plenty of people who are nice, who are friendly, who are polite. But we need to show more than that. Because that is nothing. That we are a holy nation. There's something about us, what we say, what we associate, our identity speaks of the one who owns us. Then he says, you are a people belonging to God. How often when we come to matters of obedience, do we find ourselves saying, I just don't have time for that? And what we're assuming is, well, it's your time. That's your possession. That belongs to you. And we're kind of forgetting here, wait a minute, Uh, we, we belong to another We're people belonging to God. And throughout the New Testament, you have language that reminds us we have been purchased, we have been ransomed, we have been bought. All speaking of a marketplace scene where a price is paid for something and and ownership has changed. Maybe as Christians, we we need to be reminded as a church that, that that is what's unique about us. We belong to God. Yeah, we have a building, we have a physical address, but, but we don't belong to the town of Canaan. We don't just belong to this building. We, we belong to God. We have been purchased by Christ. So everything about us, time, resources, finances, that's not yours. That's not mine. It's God's. What a privilege that we can take what he has just given us and use it for his honor and glory. Not use it to get more, like a prosperity gospel sort of twist on that. We, we do it freely and willingly. Why? Because he's God. Because of all that he has done for us. You notice in verse 10, this poetic language, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you didn't have mercy, Now you have received mercy. Uh, You may have picked up on this poetic language comes from the book of Hosea. And if you know the plot line of the book of Hosea, you have God comparing Israel's unfaithfulness with his faithfulness in Gomer marrying this woman or Hosea marrying Gomer who is unfaithful. And so these words remind us why, why were we saved? Not because God looked at us and said, what an what addition you will be to the family of God. But it's because he displayed mercy to us. In the midst of our sin, he demonstrated his love for us. In the midst of the consequences of our own decision-making and pushing him out of our lives, he pursued after us. And I don't know what was going through Peter's mind as he, he wrote this, but I can't help but think he thought I know what this means because I know myself and I know my life and how thankful I am that you pursued after me and now I am one of your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. But as we think of Peter's rich corporate language and Old Testament imagery that he pulls out here, all of this is intended to get his readers to consider that our corporate identity matters. In other words, there's far-reaching consequences to who we are. And he sort of boils this down to an unavoidable question, an inevitable question. Everyone has to answer, who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? Everyone you know has somehow already attempted to answer that question. If it's your neighbor who doesn't go to church and doesn't necessarily have any interest, they've already answered that question. They've said, well, Jesus is, maybe he's real, but he's not important. I'm not going to base my life on him. I'm not going to change who I am. Uh, I've, I've answered those questions. Who is Jesus and what will I do with him? Hopefully, if you're sitting here, you have answered it in a much different way. But Peter reminds us there there have always only been two responses. And he lays those out, one to encourage those who have responded positively to this. The other is to caution and warn those who have already answered in a negative way. So notice in verses 4, 5, and 6, you have a positive response. Well, those who have placed their faith in Christ. Again, verse four, as you come, is not just a casual sort of reference here as you go to church, uh, but the verb itself means as as you come in the sense of to apply oneself, to, to be occupied with this. So those who have put their trust in Christ, this becomes a priority in our life. It becomes something we are occupied with we are concerned about, we apply ourselves to know Christ better, to walk more faithfully with him. Notice verse five, as we talked about the picture of a house here, that in verse five we see God's spirit comes and lives in us. We are now able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God through Christ. And often when we pray as a congregation, often as we've sung different choruses, hymns, we're reminded what we're doing, worshipping the one true God in spirit and in truth, is would be impossible without the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now through Christ, by means of Christ, we are able to offer sacrifices that he receives, that he delights in, that he pours out his favor on us. What a dramatic change. What a a new way of looking at serving Christ. Not, Not as a mere burden, something you have to do, but something you desire to do. And to know that God receives this in the name of Christ, no matter how small that task may look from the perspective of someone else. So we're able to Do sacrifices that are well-pleasing. But then notice verse 6, it says at the end of it, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now once more, think of Peter's audience. You're being criticized by generally the world. He reminds you subtly you should see yourselves as foreigners and strangers. This, This isn't your permanent home. So don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me. But Jesus takes this full scale and says, but in the big picture, you will never, as his child, be humiliated or disgraced before him. And isn't that what matters most? Isn't that what identity in Christ is all about? The identity corporately, in a very individualistic and self-centered world that can easily spill into the church. And that's why Peter talks here, not about just who you personally are in Christ, so you can leave feeling better about yourself, but, but who you are in the body of Christ corporately. So that gives us a glimpse, well, this is what awaits those who have put their trust in him. And the word trust, believe, is the same word there. It it speaks of your confidence rests in him. I think for a moment at this point, Peter has no authority, no, no way of changing the circumstances of his hearers. He's not able to politically be some earth shaker and be able to establish new laws by the end of this letter, so they're doing better outwardly. But he is, by the power of God, able to remind them of their corporate identity. But we mustn't shy away from the fact, well, what about those who, who just deny Christ? What about those who just hear this and walk away and want nothing to do with it? Well, Peter says that that is a reality. That is the second option that you can take. But it's not an option without consequences. So once again, look at verse 6 where we read the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If that is true, would it be safe to say the opposite is true? If you do not trust in him, you will experience shame and disgrace. And not necessarily always in this life. I'm sure we can think of people who have been wicked, evil, and have lived long lives and have won the acclaim of many in this world, but that doesn't change the fact they will experience humiliation and the ultimate disgrace in having to stand before God and acknowledge their disbelief. That is a reality that Peter says, remind not just yourselves of this because it will show you what your blessings are in Christ, but it will also give you greater passion to pray, and to think of those who presently stand in this condition. They're the objects of of God's shame, God's wrath, even now. But then he goes on in verse 7, referencing the book of Psalms. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Now you notice in that verse, it speaks of the stone the builders have rejected. And the word rejected there is a very specific term, and it refers to dismissing something after having looked at it. So it's not where they've never heard of this, and oops, I didn't know about that, but, but they've had a knowledge. They, they've heard of these things, and that would fit the people of Israel in Psalm 118, in Isaiah, when you have these references to, I've sent my prophets to them, and, and they don't listen. But you tell them who I am, but they're not going to listen. So there's a, a willfulness about their rejection. And I think for many of us, there's sort of a new understanding here that for, for many people who have walked away from Christ it, it's not that they have never known a Christian, or it's not that they've never been to church. It's that they have been to church some, and they have known some Christians, and what they saw was not Christ. That changes the game a little bit in the playing field. It puts some serious onus on us. As have, what have we done to add to that thought and impression that many people have? that the last thing I would want is a Christian friend, or the last thing I would want is to hire a Christian to work for me. I says to us, wow, there's this gap. If we're clear in our identity in Christ and we're not reflecting Christ as we should, then somehow we really don't understand our corporate identity. So these people that are referenced here who have made this negative response have, have willfully heard these things and turned away from them. But then notice as well in verse 8 as it goes on, uh, a stone that causes men to stumble. So whereas in the one sense, it's a corner, Christ is a cornerstone, that interlocking piece that brings us together, the capstone, that very same stone to those who are hardened by sin, becomes a means of stumbling. They they trip over it. They they cannot get past this. Talk to a Jehovah witness, a Muslim, but can't they get past about Christ? That he's God, that he's fully God. He's, He's not just like God, he is God. Or they can't get past the concept of the Trinity. It's a stumbling stone to them. But then he also says, not only is it a stumbling stone, but it's a rock that makes them fall. Uh, the root for this word fall here is the picture of a, you might want to say like a mouse trap, where you'd put the bait. In other words, they see it as a trap. They see it as something scandalous. Why would the message of Jesus Christ, the living stone, the one who came to die for your sins, be seen by many in our world, even today, as a very scandalous, ridiculous message? I mean, I'm I'm assuming most of us are sitting here saying, oh, we we love this message. And you're probably thinking, you know, keep preaching. Go to two or three o'clock in the afternoon. I don't mind staying. But to others, why is this the most repulsive, ridiculous, absurd thing to say? Because you're saying your your answer to forgiveness is in a crucified Savior. I mean, those are two terms that don't seem to go together. And I think we should realize, you know what, there's some truth to that. It, It doesn't really make sense because it is a wondrous miraculous event. Look at me at 2 Corinthians where this was not lost by Paul and he didn't want it to be lost by the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16. And maybe this will help us as we interact with people who don't know the Bible, who have many questions about Christ, to realize their, their initial maybe problem is not hard to see. It will take God's spirit to change this. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Not only do you have that corporate identity woven throughout this, but as a reminder, there are two very different responses that people will have to you and me as a Christian. To those who know Christ, to those whom God is working on their heart to bring them to Christ, we will be in a a refreshment to them, a a pleasant aroma. And and you want to think of Paul's imagery here comes from something he would have witnessed. Many of his audience would have witnessed when a Roman army comes back from a, a victory, they would have this triumphant procession. And as Roman soldiers led the captive through the streets, people would throw down rose petals and the horses would gallop over them and the scent would fill the air. So he says, look, as you go out into the world, you're, you're this certain scent. You will be a fragrance to those who are spiritually hungry, who God is working on their hearts. To one another in Christ, you will delight in each other's presence and your corporate identity. But on the flip side of that, to those who have rejected this, to those to whom this living stone is a stumbling stone, a scandalous thing, you will be repulsive to them. That's the reality that has not changed since the day this was given and will not change until Jesus Christ returns. But our corporate identity should dictate everything that we say think, and do throughout the week. Because identity, who you are, and what you stand for, not just matters, but it has far-reaching consequences for all of us. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, thank you, not just for who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but out of that, who we are is the body of Christ. May that be evident in everything about us in this coming week. We pray these things in the name of our powerful Savior, who didn't just come to save us from sin, but saved us to be a pleasing aroma to those around us. In your name, amen.